I've been reading uh, the history of Obus Day by two authors, Jose Luis uh, Gonzalez Guyon and uh, John Coverdale. It's kind of an objective uh, overview of the history of Obus Day with all the juridical dimensions and all the things that happened from the early 20s to to 1960s, uh, well, the Second Vatican Council, and then there was the second volume until the present. And in one of the chapters, it recounts how in February of 1947, the Holy See had approved the work as a secular institute. And immediately after that approval, Thomas Alvida, who was one of the men who passed through the Pyrenees with uh, our father, immediately asked to join the work as a supernumerary. <coughs> a number had already joined as numeraries, but our father saw that he, he would be a supernumerary. And then two months later, a few others whistled, Mariano Navarro Rubio and another fellow, Garcia Oz. And uh, for that moment, their commitment was purely spiritual, because at that moment there was still yet no possibility that married members could be received in the work from a legal point of view. That was 1947, but then in 1948, the Holy See actually approved that any condition that you were in could be, a person could be in the work, whether they were married or whether they were single. And therefore both could establish a bond the work could give them formation, have workshops, recollections. It was like now legally recognized by the Holy See, 1948. And uh, our father would stress that the call to be saints could definitely take place in marriage. And his emphasis was that, well, that's not a utopia, that you can be saints in marriage. It's, it's a divine call, he would say. And in those early years, the excitement about the idea that married people could also be saints, the excitement at embracing that ideal was, was, was palpable. And by 1950, there were already 25 members of the work that were supernumeraries. And so they took from our father this sense of excitement about what marriage and family could really be. He describes it as a divine adventure where they had a mission in this divine adventure to create a home, a stable environment where their families could radiate the beauty of the gospel. And he pictured the families of supernumeraries as, a, as an oasis an oasis for other families and for other marriages. You know what an oasis is like? Picture an oasis, like there's like a calm lake, uh, not too many hostile creatures. Uh, so it's, maybe you picture some pink flamingos or something, and uh, there's water, there's trees, there's palm, palm trees, there's vegetation. And then all around is just dry land, just desert. Everywhere else is just, you know, a hostile environment. But there, in that oasis, 
it's fertile, there's a source of fresh water in an area that otherwise would be quite dry and arid. And why, why did these uh, oases come about? Well, because it seems that they have an underground source of water that somehow comes right there. And so you get a cluster of palm trees and people are amazed by these oases because they produce uh, dates, they produce cotton, they produce figs, they produce citrus fruits, right? wheat, corn. And uh, they call these underwater sources of water, they call them aquifers. And uh, some are purely natural. We don't know how those things took place, but they're just natural. Others are man-made. You know, you think of um, a place like Las Vegas, right? They have man-made aquifers, right? And uh, some of them, they say that some of these oases, apparently they're like oases, they they were uh, centuries old. And some of them, see these oases, they, they have to be maintained very diligently for generations. They have a well and they have to preserve access to this life-giving water so that, the, so that the oasis stays alive. And in a place like the, Sarat, the, the Sahara, the sand and the desert winds can destroy the crops very easily and they can pollute the water. So they have to protect that oasis. That's a little bit how our father imagined the supernumerary families. These oases in the desert that are actually sprinkled throughout the desert. And in fact, they're so valuable that they, these oases have become like stops along trade routes where merchants and uh, traders would travel along these routes, go from one oasis to another. They would replenish themselves with food and water and stuff like that and supplies as we picture this we think but somehow that's how my family has to be that has to be my my dream and uh, but it takes time and takes energy to keep this place of replenishment because there is the danger of the sand getting in and we think that travelers along the way, they do count on you. They do count on you maintaining this oasis. You know, it seems like, like Las Vegas in the Mojave Desert right, was also a natural oasis. But then the casinos came. And they were the result of these ruthless entrepreneurs who decided to make money by this oasis. In fact, the first settlers who came, they called it Las Vegas, which means like a meadow, right, in Spanish, a meadow, and because they discovered the, the beauty of the meadows in the middle of a, of a desert in the, in the 19th century. Well, that's all gone now because they have the casinos. I don't think there are many meadows in Las Vegas. So they keep it nourished by these artificial lakes and the Hoover Dam. But we might think that 
A place like Las Vegas, we, we don't think of it as an oasis, right? It's become quite uh, corrupted. Uh, I don't think it's probably not safe to walk in the streets there, right? And uh, we might think that this image that our father had of your homes being bright and cheerful homes, like these oases, we might think it's rather idealistic, like a, like a Toys R Us commercial or something like that, or a, an Oreos ad, you know, or Ritz crackers where everybody is having fun and eating Oreos. And, you know. and we might think that when our father imagined these oases, these families, that everything goes wonderfully, everything goes amazing, the kids are super cute, and uh, they never complain, they never have tantrums. Uh, it's, you know, it's just wonderful. But is that the oasis that our father imagined? Of course, he knew that there were difficulties in life. He understood that the sands of the desert and the winds come into these oases. And probably oases, I, I, I imagine they have swamps with alligators too. You know, they, they say that uh, a beautiful family, the family of uh, Saint Thérèse de Lisieux, was a beautiful example of an oasis like that. But their firstborn child, Leonie, was apparently very, very difficult. She had tantrums every two seconds. Right? And uh, they found it very difficult to bring her up. Right? It was not easy at all. Some people, I heard some people say that she might have been on the, on the, uh, on the, on, you know, on the spectrum of um, autism or something, but who knows. But, but it was very difficult. And, and nevertheless, despite that struggle, but despite that hardships they had, okay, it, it still was done within the context of being an oasis because they garnered meaning to their struggle, meaning to their purpose, which was to become saints. Okay. These parents, who are now saints, okay, made of their daughters also saints. And of, co of course, the, the greatest example is Saint Therese. Okay. And, you know, there's that story where they went to, to visit the Pope at one point, I think Leo Thirteenth, and, and they went to Rome, and uh, Therese was very excited, and everybody told her, look, when you're in the same room with the Pope, don't talk to the Pope. You just don't do that. It's not done. He's the Pope. You just don't talk. He's the Pope, so do not talk. And apparently they repeated to her always over and over, because she had... Uh, a rather independent streak, and uh, but it seems like as soon as she saw the Pope, she went right up to him and spoke to him, and she had no problem. He's he's our father, he's the father of the church, and she asked immediately if she could have a dispensation so she could enter into the into her convent earlier, even though she wasn't of the age, she wasn't old enough, and they had refused her. She had that confidence to go up, probably because she had confidence in her, her own father. And, and so, you know, let us ask our Lord now to understand the, the dream that God has for your family and what role you are playing in that home. Okay? The very word home okay? in Spanish, hogar, it's, a, it's, it's like it has this, this sense of being a stable place with hallowed memories, the most stable and beautiful place of all on earth when you say 
this is my home, I'm going home. You refer to the place where maybe you grew up. It has something unique about it. Mm-hmm. But it is a home that at one point was just a house, was just a place that some real estate agent you know, sold to you. It was just a, just a house, that's it. And yet it had to be something that was made a home. It was a house, then it became a home. It was built, it was cared for, and of course, essential was that feminine touch, that tender feminine touch that really is like the magical touch that makes a house into a home. And uh, our father really liked to use that, that phrase, bright and cheerful homes. Bright, that's how he imagined them, this oasis of a bright and cheerful home. So we ask in the presence of God now, how can this really happen? How can we maintain that dream? How can this sense of me being in a bright and cheerful home actually pervade everything I do? And because there's no powerful way of creating such a home other than having unconditional love. Because we were created for love. God who created man out of love also calls him to love, is what the Catechism says. That is fundamental and innate to every human being. You know, that's like the DNA of the home. That there's this unconditional love that your children understand. They somehow understand the idea or the word unconditional love. Because we were created for love. That's that's why we were created. That's why we came off the conveyor belt. Whether we are or we are not aware of it, one of our deepest aspirations is truly to give ourselves completely and fully to another. And uh, you know, like, there's a gospel parable that presents or represents love as something that is growing in our hearts. It's, it's part of that, that source of water in the oasis. You know, what makes the oasis so beautiful and luminous and, and fresh is that it has this, this underground source of water. In our home, the underground source of water right, is, is that love that is growing in our hearts. Like our Lord says, like that wheat yeah, that haven't been sown sprouts, and you just, it just, you know, you throw the the seed, and and the wheat grows just by itself. Whether the for- farmer watches, whether he sleeps, it grows. That's a, that we have to ask, Lord, make that love grow in my home, because we know it, that love often fails to grow. Its development can be blocked by selfishness, materialism, pride. Our Father, our Lord says, and the cares of the world and the delight of the riches, or delights in riches. And other barriers that stop that water from refreshing our oasis, that stop our love from growing. And what is the main thing that stops our love 
in the home from growing? Or what, what is the main thing that stops our home from being truly that oasis, that, that beautiful place? Well, the, the fundamental problem is when there's no water, and there's no water when there is lack of hope. And that's why we must have recourse to the sacrament that the, the Lord blessed you with. He blessed you with the sacrament of marriage. Because within the sacrament of marriage, it's one of the seven sacraments, the Lord blessed you with a great divine power. You were married. And on that day, you were given a blessing. You exchanged these vows. And on the very moment in which you said, I do, your husband said, I do, something miraculous was forged there. A bond was forged. And you were given from that moment a great grace. A deep grace, a sacramental grace, the grace of marriage. On the first day, it was just like chill. You don't need it. You have the reception to go to. You have the fun, the friends. But as you get older, as you go through the challenges of marriage and children, it's as though right the, the, the grace of that marriage starts to show its effects. You know, it's like going back to the well, you know. When the well is totally full, you know, I mean, you know, you have lots of water, but now, now you, when there are those challenges, you have to go back to the well. That's the sacrament of marriage, the sacramental grace. And maybe, maybe it's, all, it's been kind of dormant and sleepy. Like that mustard seed that the Lord speaks about. It has to grow a lot. At first, it's just a tiny little seed, the smallest of all the seeds. In chapter 4, St. Mark, he, he speaks uh, as though he were comparing the kingdom of God to a family. Right? That is, it's a beautiful place, like in Oasis. The kingdom of God is like a beautiful place. He says, To what can we compare the kingdom of God? With what parable shall we present it? He says, It's like a mustard seed which is the smallest of all the seeds upon, sown upon the earth. But after it is planted, it grows to be the largest of all garden plants and puts forth great branches so that the birds of the air nest in its shade. Now, if that's not the family, I don't know what it is. No. It starts small. You started small. You receive that grace. But then, boom, it starts to grow. Is my family like that tree? Do I have the hope that my family can be like that beautiful tree within that oasis? There's so many kids there. They're safe. They're growing beautifully. They're given the shade from the heat. And we must have that hope that this is what love can do. We must never lack hope in that. When does that happen that we lack hope? When does it ever happen? It happens when we don't really believe that God can make us happy. When we don't really believe that our fidelity can make us happy. And so what happens? Well, we construct our own little happiness out of covetousness and lust and 
and then we foment more and more distractions, you know, lots of distractions. So we all have our phones. And yesterday, the Lord said, "Remember the wife of Lot." Remember the wife of Lot. Remember what? What should we remember? Well, she looked into the city of Sodom when it was up in flames after the angel, well, after God, through the angel, had told them to, to leave Sodom. It was a dangerous place. Lots of immorality going on there. A lot of secularism, you could say. But she kept gazing back in the distance. Even though she'd been told, don't look back. Don't, don't go there. She looked back in her curiosity, despite the smoke and the flames. She somehow, as she was running away, turned and imagined that if I was there, if I was there, it would somehow be better. I would be enjoying myself. She was looking at something disordered. I mean, it's, it's meant to be, it, it happened. She was turned into a pillar of salt because she was paralyzed. That is, she was frozen. Um, she was destroyed because she looked back on what she, yeah, what she really desired. She didn't have hope to go and run into the mountains. She didn't have that hope. We ask you, Lord, now for that hope. It's always worthwhile to work away at fomenting that hope in your children by being a good example. And just the very um, taxing task of sowing cheerfulness in the home. Remember? Uh, you know, our father said, bright and cheerful homes. You know, and we are we are like the water that the, the grace of sacrament is the water that nourishes the oasis, but so is your smile, your kindness, your warmth, your tenderness, but also your your discipline. When you have to discipline, we have to say no. You know, there are moments you have to do that. And they say that in the times of of Saint Therese, the aspect, uh, I guess, culturally of discipline was very severe. The children were very very always super disciplined and. And maybe her family, they had also inherited that somewhat, but they were much more tender than other families, much more warm and much more caring, much more loving. So let's not lack trust in what God's grace of the sacrament with your correspondence can do in your life. Do not lack that trust in God, what He can do, what we can do with His help. Because Lacking trust in God leads to the shrinkage of the heart. It leads to the lessening of charity. And that's why our father wanted us to drink the good wine of uh, Cana. You know, the Cana, we all know, eh, was a, a beautiful marriage. But it's, but they started with this, this wine that was, eh, it was so-so. You know, probably bought at Walmart's or something. I don't know if you can buy wine at Walmart's, but uh, and that's that that first wine in the marriage of Cana is the the first love of your marriage that brought you together. It made you decide to start a family, and that was good. Your attraction that was the first wine at Cana, and it is good. But it is the kind of wine that uh, runs out. The first love of a marriage always runs out at one point. Mm -hmm. 
probably after a few years. But the sacrament of marriage provides the second wine that was the fruit of our Lord's miracle with the intercession of the Blessed Virgin Mary that changed these vats of water into this insanely amazing Merlot or a Shiraz or a, you know, I don't know, a a really, really good uh, Chardonnay. A beautiful wine. And so the host, when he drank it, said, well, you, you get the best wine to the end when all the, all the participants are, you know, are drunk. Yeah, but they're drunk with the, the first wine. So sacrament of marriage is the second wine. And it comes with fidelity to the plan of life, to your apostles, to your unity in the, in the family, the effort in forming the children, the learning from mistakes. And when we lose that fervor and that zest, uh, you know, that generosity in loving God and our vocation to love the family, mm-hmm. it can often be due to discouragement, uh, a secret kind of uh, despair. The remedy always is to rekindle our hope. Yeah. No matter how weak and wretched we feel, we can always accomplish this with His grace. Well, let us ask this of our Blessed Mother and um, that we can really rejuvenate this oasis. Go back to the original waters in the well so that the flamingos can fly about. I don't know if flamingos fly, but uh, at least uh, prads through the waters and protect ourselves from the, the burning, searing sun of the desert and its winds the secular culture around us and the crazy ideas that we hear so that this oasis be protected, be beautiful and be really what our father dreamed of, bright and cheerful homes. Not painless, not no problems, but bright and cheerful no matter what happens. And we will be like posts for traders to come by and seek rejuvenation. Let's ask our Blessed Mother of that, who was there at the wedding at Cana, She'll intercede for us so that really does happen. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations you've communicated to me in this meditation. I ask you to put them into effect. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me.